So our scripture reading this morning comes from the first chapter of Micah. Actually, it is the first chapter of Micah. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we're starting a new summer sermon series in the book of Micah. Now, Micah is a, it's a lesser-known book toward the end of the Old Testament, one of 12 books that are referred to as the, the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because the books are shorter. And that's how they're sometimes known, the minor prophets. Now, to get to Micah, if you have a Bible, take out your Bible. And there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can, either, um, you can either start at the New Testament and sort of work your way backwards. It won't take you that long. You're just kind of flipping through and you get to Micah. Or you can find the last of the major prophets, which are the longer books. And it's a little bit past halfway in your Bibles. And the major prophets, they're, they're bigger. They're not hard to find. You find the last one, that's Daniel. And then you move forward into the minor prophets. And Micah is number six. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There you go, and you're there. Now, if you want to make it really easy, just take the blue Bible and the chair rack and turn to page 985, and you're there like that. So let's read Micah chapter 1. Let me invite you, if you're able, to stand, and I will read this aloud, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it, if, is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Laafra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please be seated. <clears throat> so, ever heard a sermon in the book of Micah? Chances are, if you have, it's likely from one of two places. Chapter 6, which is very famous, Micah 6, 8. Lots of people, if they have such a thing as a theme verse in their life, a life verse, sometimes they'll pick Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Very famous verse. Lots of sermons on Micah 6. The other well-known text from Micah is at the beginning of chapter 5. That's where the prophecy of the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem comes. So Micah 5 gets some play as well, sometimes around Christmas. But beyond that, people don't tend to spend a ton of time in Micah, but we should. And this summer we, we will. But let me just take a second and, 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 and help you with, the, with a very important question as we approach this. Why should you care? about Micah. I mean, I say we should spend some time in Micah, and we will spend some time in Micah, but why should you care that we're going to spend some time in Micah? Well, first of all, Micah is going to remind us about why the world is so messed up, and everyone is, is desperate to know the answer to that question, right? Why is, why, why is the world so messed up? What's wrong with the world? Well, Micah is going to help us with that. Second, Micah is going to show us very clearly God's character. He's going to show us that, Micah, or that, that God will not tolerate injustice. And that's something that we need to know about God. He's also going to show us, though, that God is faithful to the promises that he has made to his people. So Micah is going to remind us about ourselves and why the world's so messed up, and it's going to remind us about the character of God. So we'll see ourselves and we'll see God. And what that means then for you is that if you're very aware of how painful this world is, but you aren't sure of why it's that way, then Micah will show you the answer. Or if, you're, if you've been in your own life a victim of injustice, wondering if you can ever feel safe again, then Micah's going to show you the God who defends you. Or if you've been yourself maybe a perpetrator of injustice, maybe done terrible things in your own life, and you're wondering if there's, if there's any way that the things that you have done in your life can be forgiven, if the wrong that you have done can ever be washed away then Micah is also going to show you a God who is rich in mercy towards those who confess their sin and turn to him in genuine repentance. Now to start, this week, we're just going to do a short, it's just going to be an introduction, right? There really isn't anything here this week that we're not going to talk more about this summer, but we really do need to spend some time and set things up a little bit. So I want to introduce you to Micah this morning because he's, he's the prophet, that's point number one. He's the prophet who warns that's point number two. And he's the prophet who mourns. That's point number three. Right? So three points. The prophet, right? The prophet warns and the prophet mourns. Now let's start with the prophet himself. We actually don't know a ton about Micah, but we can safely conclude that he was the author of what we have in front of us because verse one is the typical superscription that you would have for a book like this. The author begins by identifying himself and giving a brief description of who he is. Now, aside from a quick reference in Jeremiah chapter 26, which is significant, but aside from that, Micah's name doesn't really show up anywhere else in the Bible. He's relatively obscure, and he comes from a pretty obscure place, a small village called Morasheth. That's what it says in verse 1. Now, this is a real town. Right? Archaeologists have identified Morasheth, where it was. They identified it when they found the ruins of another town that referenced it, and so they said, oh, we know Morasheth. We know where this this was. Now, sometimes Morsheth was referred to, like you see in verse 14, as Morsheth Gath, because it was near Gath, which was a larger, more well-known city. So it was, Morsheth was a relatively 
insignificant, relatively small city, but it was a real place. It was just kind of like a country village, sort of right near Gath. Now, that's where Micah was from. And his ministry is defined by the names of three kings that we see noted in verse 1 as well, right? Do you see the three kings there? Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And this is where we really do need to step back and do a little historical work, right? Do a little history. Now, kids kind of say, like, wait a minute, school's out, really? You got to do a history lesson? Yeah, I mean, I sympathize, I do, but we've got to. Because really, you can't just jump into something like this. I mean, you can, but it's really not very helpful. Like, where, are, where are we? Like, where is this book coming from? We got we to gotta do this. And I, don't, I actually don't want to presume too much. So let's start back towards the very beginning, okay? The Bible, the Bible, we have the Bible. The Bible tells us, right, Vince Lombardi, right? Gentlemen, this is a football. That's, uh, we have the Bible, right? The Bible starts and tells us the story of God's plan to graciously rescue a people from the consequences of the mess that they've made of their world, right? That's a fair sum. What is the Bible? The Bible is a story of God's plan in history to graciously rescue a group of people from the consequences of the mess they've made of the world. And the plan really begins to take shape in the Bible when God comes to a guy named Abraham and promises to make him a great nation and to give him a land. Well, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob is also called or referred to as Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons, and each of these 12 sons becomes the head of a tribe. They're called the 12 tribes of Israel. And all through the years, they go into slavery in Egypt, and God rescues them out of slavery. These 12 tribes, they all maintain their distinct identity as individual tribes, all within the unity of God's people of Israel. So that hundreds of years later, hundreds of years after Jacob's sons had lived, and hundreds of years after they had entered into the, the land of Israel, when they enter into the land of Israel, they're, they're, the land is divided among the 12 tribes. Now, these 12 tribes, they still have trouble getting along from the very beginning, and there's centuries and centuries of all kinds of trouble within the, within the people of Israel. You read about that in the book of Judges. But finally, for a little over 100 years, these 12 tribes get together and unite under a common king. It's often referred to as the, the years of the United Kingdom. You have King Saul, you have King David, and then you have King Solomon, about 120 years or so. Now, after Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, had some trouble holding everything together. Politics is brutal. And, the, and, 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 and the majority of the tribes say, you know what? We're done with this. We're done with this king. We're done with Jerusalem. We're out of here. And, and the majority of the tribes break away and form another kingdom to the north. They just secede from the union. They break away from the rightful king in Jerusalem. This happens around 930 B.C. There's only two tribes in the south that remain loyal to the throne, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of David and Solomon and Rehoboam. Just two tribes. Benjamin, Judah. That's why this continuing kingdom in the line of David is referred to as the kingdom of Judah, right? So when you see Micah, this is how this helps us, right? So when you see Micah, refer to Jerusalem or refer to Judah like he does in verse 1 or in verse 5 or in verse 9. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the southern kingdom. 
Now, the rest of the tribes to the north of Judah, they formed a new nation that is often referred to as the kingdom of Israel. Right? It can be a little confusing, but don't let that... F- the kingdom of Israel. Now, they set, they set up a new capital in the capital city of Samaria. Right? New nation, new capital, Samaria. So when you see, this is how this helps us, when you see Micah refer to Samaria in verse 1 or in verse 5 or in verse 6 of what we read, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the northern kingdom that broke away from the authority of Jerusalem. Okay? So that's the history. Right? Very important to kind of set the scene like that. Because, because then when you see Micah identify his period of ministry in verse 1 as happening during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, you see that he says they are kings of Judah. So which kingdom are we talking about here? Southern kingdom, right. Right, the kingdom of Judah. These three kings during which Micah ministered are all descendants of King David and King Solomon. And we have pretty good records of, of, about these kings. And in total, they ruled as kings of Judah for about 63 years or so, from 750 B.C. to 687 B.C. Now, that doesn't mean that Micah was, was actively prophesying and ministering in all of those 63 years. But if his ministry occurred for at least a little while during each of those three kings' uh, reigns, then you're talking about at least 20 to 25 years kind of from 730 to 735 on one end to 715, 710 B.C. on the other, right? That's the period when Micah was prophesying. So that's the prophet Micah, right? Point number one. Now, why should we care? Great, history lesson. Why, why should we care? Because, because, all right, even if you don't remember any of the dates, even if you don't remember the names of every king, then at least you have to walk away remembering that this guy Micah was a real dude, right? He really lived at a real time in history. This is why the Bible puts this stuff in there for us. This is why God does this. These were real people who lived and raised their kids and, and lived in times when armies fought and empires rose and fell and conquered. See, that's really important because the Bible is a record of historical events and even the books like the prophets like Micah when they're written even in Hebrew poetry they're not just collections of sayings and inspirational thoughts they aren't fables that are that are just kind of teaches some greater truth not grounded in reality no these are true events and real people these details are here at the beginning of Micah so that we know when and where this guy lived And to remind us that the Bible always considers itself first to be historical news. That's point number one, an introduction to the prophet Micah. Now, let's introduce ourselves to Micah's message. Specifically, first, his warnings of God's judgment, right? That's point number two, the prophet warns, right? And it starts right away in verse two with Micah calling for everyone's attention, right? You see, hear you peoples, all of you, Pay attention, O Earth. Maybe some of you remember this. When I was a kid, there was a, um, a PBS TV show called The Electric Company. Anybody ever remember that? It was sort of meant, it was like a sketch comedy thing for kids. It was sort of meant to be like a, for those that have kind of moved on from Sesame Street. And I don't remember a whole ton about it, but I do remember very clearly that at the beginning of every episode, this actress, her name was, I looked it up, her name was Rita Marino. She shouts at the top of her lungs, Hey, you guys! 
and that's how the program starts, right? That's what Micah's doing, right? He's basically standing on a chair in a crowded room doing like the two-finger-in-the-mouth two whistly thing and kind of saying like, hey, hey, you guys, listen up, pay attention. That's what he's doing. Now, there's lots of people in our world trying to get our attention, right? There's lots of people trying to shout above the noise and get you to listen. The question that we need to ask when someone's trying to get our attention is, do they actually have something to say? All right, true story. I had a very good friend uh, in college who once decided it would be kind of funny to stand up on a chair in the dining hall in the middle of the, the crowded, you know, crowded mealtime. It's the Rod Rodney Dining Hall, West Campus, University of Delaware. And a bunch of us are just sitting around, you know, sitting around our table, and he, my friend, suddenly gets up on his chair and he says, I have something to say. Now, a few people turn around or whatever, but I mean, it's a big hall. Noisy people are eating, you know, clanking spoons and that kind of stuff. So he screams it louder. I have something to say. Now, everybody gets quiet now. And they all turn to look at him. And he's, and he's just kind of scanning the room. And then he says, thank you. And he sits down. That's it. He didn't have anything really to say. He just wanted to see if he could silence the room. And of course, we, thought, we all thought that was hilarious, and you probably think it's stupid, college kids, right? Yeah. But, but almost every day, almost all of us, whether it's television or news personalities or videos on our phones, almost all of us are doing the same thing. We're turning our heads to people who are on chairs screaming, hey, you guys, I have something to say, when they really don't. But Micah does. Because he's bringing, and he says it, and we declared it, the word of the Lord. And it's a very important word that's worth our attention because it's, it's a word of warning. And it starts off in verse 3 with this image of God swooping down out of heaven onto the earth in great power and destruction. The Lord will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. That's what it says. Now, the high places, this is referring to those places of worship where the foreign gods were, were, were worshipped. They became, they became popular. They were, they were on physically high places, but they kind of took the name high places. And, and, and God's going to come down and he's going to bring judgment. And the mountains are going to, it says, melt like wax before the fire. Right, that's an image, right? It's, it's like the, um, the famous face melt scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, the Ra new Indiana Jones movie coming out this this summer, this was the original, back early 80s, the famous face melt scene. When the, when the, actually, I mean, it involves God, not completely accurately, but involves God. And, and, and the holiness of God is being taken for granted by the Nazis in this movie. And they're trying to harness God's power for themselves, and the wrath of God comes on them, and they literally melt before the fire of God. And it's kind of gross, but the, but the filmmaking history of it is, is actually really cool. The visual effect is amazing. This is before CGI and computers, right? They actually sculpted faces of the actors made of gelatin and filmed them as they, as they melted. That's kind of the image of what's happening here to the mountains. It's pretty terrible. Now, what could be so terrible as to bring God's judgment like this? Well, Micah says in verse 5 that it's for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of Israel. Two different words, transgression and sins. Now, they overlap. That's often what happens in, in Hebrew poetry. You've got two lines that are kind of combined in a couplet, and the one line sort of overlaps on the one before it. They're slightly different, but they're, they're kind of connected. And that's what's happening here with these two words, transgressions and sins. 
And the scholar Stephen Dempster, in his detailed commentary on Micah, says that these two words, transgression and sin, they describe the entire gamut of wrongdoing. That's what he calls it, the entire gamut of wrongdoing. Now, like he says, the, the, the terms obviously overlap, but the Hebrew word for transgression here, he says, has connotations of rebellion, you know, kind of rebelling against the rightful king. That's what that word transgression sort of implies. The word sin, he says, that's used here in the Hebrew has associations of failure, you know, not living up to the standard. Rebellion and failure. Now, these are the two major ways that the Bible talks about how we've broken fellowship with God. The two major ways the Bible describes sin, right? You've got failure on the one hand, the breaking of God's law, the missing of the mark, the falling short of God's perfect standards, right? Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is sin? Sin is any want, that's lack, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, right? That's one way to think about sin. Now, then there's also rebellion. It is failure to meet a standard, but it all, you can also think about it as rebellion, an equally biblical way to look at it. Seeking to replace God's rule in our lives with someone, often ourselves, or something other than God. Attempting to throw off God's rightful rule and say, no, uh, this is going to reign in my life instead. That's the category in the Bible where all the images of idolatry come in. right? Worshiping something else in the place of, of God. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, All that we call human history... Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, all that, he says, is the terrible, long story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Rebellion. And Micah is saying in his warning that this failure to meet God's standard and rebelling against his authority is a very big deal. And that both Samaria in the north and Judah in the south are involved in a big way in sin and transgression against God's authority. And so he's warning them that God's judgment is coming. Now for Samaria, remember this is the northern kingdom, he's going to make it a heap, he says. All its carved images shall be beaten to pieces and the idols laid waste. Now this is exactly what was going to happen and what would happen in 722 B.C., and they've been building almost from the beginning of the northern kingdom. In the whole history of all the kings who ruled in Samaria, there isn't recorded one king who was faithful to God. As soon as they separated themselves politically from Jerusalem, they separated themselves spiritually as well. They set up these alternative worship sites. They incorporated the idols from the surrounding cultures and their, their cultic practices. But note that while Micah is warning Samaria, he's not just warning Samaria in the north, he's also warning Judah in the in the south, look at verse 9. The wound, that's Samaria's sickness, and its resulting effect, it's going to infect Judah as well. It's going to reach all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. It's terrible. But it's clear that Micah places the blame for the terribleness not on God, but on the people's transgression and sin. And he's warning them about where their continued persistence in this transgression and sin is going to take them, right? That's point number two. And we'll expand. We'll see this over the next couple of months, but that's the warning of Micah. Now, real quick, though, before we move on, just like we did with point number one, why should we care about this warning? Well, because it tells us that sin is real. It's not just some sort of psychological fiction, 
from which we need to free ourselves, right? That was the argument of Sigmund Freud. Is it sin, guilt, it's just, it's just a psychological fiction. You need, to be, you need to free yourself from that. No, sin, Micah is telling us, is an existential fact. It cuts to the very heart of who we are. And we don't need to free ourselves. We need forgiveness, not from ourselves, but from someone else, namely from God, because he's the one we've offended. Sin is real. That's why we should care. Now, it also, we should also care because it tells us that we're all sinners. I'm sure the people in Judah loved to look down, or if they were looking north, look up, but you know, look down on the people of Samaria. That's you idol worshipers. Of course God's going to judge you. Right? But Micah doesn't let the people of Judah point the finger out there. He takes the finger and he brings it right around back to them. And that's a worthwhile reminder for us, you know, religious types who have stayed with the true church, like the people of Judah. You know, we haven't gone anywhere. Reminder that we don't always have our house in order either. Why? Because sin starts with us individually in each of our hearts. Right? We've got to start with ourselves. Remember G.K. Chesterton. Yeah? Dear sirs, in response to your inquiry, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We're all sinners. That's the second thing the warning tells us. Now, third thing why this warning is important is it reminds us that God is just. And we'll get deeper into this over the next few weeks, but God's wrath, though scary, is perfectly justified. It it is his perfect expression of how much he cares about the world and how much he cares about what's hurting the world. Scholar Stephen Dempster again, God cannot tolerate such lies that warp his world and the people in it. He doesn't want, he loves the world too much to let those things, even us, that harm his beautiful world, to let those things continue without intervention. God loves his creation and he hates what hurts it. All right, now that's the warning. That's point number two. Now, finally, last point. The prophet mourns. If you look at verse 16, Micah is telling the people to shave their heads and make themselves bald. Now, what's that mean? I mean, actually, shaving your head and mutilating your body as a sign of grief was actually forbidden in the law of Moses, generally speaking. Look at Deuteronomy 14. It was considered part of the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. It was not what God's holy people did. It It was shameful. Now, in ancient Israel, there were certain types of shaving that were permitted as a sign of very intense mourning. And, and, and one way or another, certainly very intense mourning is what's, is what's in view here. But no, Micah doesn't just commend the mourning to others. He doesn't just tell the people to mourn. No, he's mourning too. Look in verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will make lamentation and mourning. And then note, you probably, I mean, you saw this as we read through it, but from verses 10 to 15, he lists almost a dozen small cities or towns that are going to be subject to judgment. Now, these are towns in the south. They're they're actually towns in Judah. And if we had time, we could go town by town because this is a very sophisticated wordplay going on here. Because in every case, the metaphor or the image of, of judgment that is attached to the individual town relates to the name of that town. Micah, is, what he's doing is he's making some very sophisticated puns. And, and the English tries to capture it. And you could kind of go through and you could do a really cool kind of study of how each one kind of matches up. It's almost dark humor in a sense. But here's the point. Micah is listing all these towns 
because they're all towns that will, cons- that will, will, will receive, will experience the coming disaster by an army as it enters into Judah and makes its way to Jerusalem. These are all towns that are along the route to Jerusalem for the conquest of, of, of Jerusalem. Right? They all lay to the southwest and they followed a route that's normally used, was normally used by invading armies on the way to the capital city. And you recognize one of the cities, right? Morshev, verse 14. Whose hometown is that? Micah's. In other words, this isn't some abstract theological exercise for Micah, right? He knows these people. He's one of them. See, Micah is a prophet who doesn't exclude himself from those who ought to be mourning. And that's appropriate. He can't exclude himself from the company of sinners that he's claiming and calling to repent. His message of warning is equally appropriate for himself. But in taking this posture of humility, Micah does something else. He, he, he does something even more significant. He points us to the baby that he'll later prophesy about in Micah 5, a baby who would be born 700 years later in Bethlehem, a small city in the land of Judah. And he points us to the man who that baby would grow up to be, who will also arise out of an insignificant town, Nazareth. Remember what good can come out of Nazareth. A man who will bring a warning about God's coming judgment unless the people turn from their sin and repent. But that man, Jesus, was not just a prophet of Judah who brought a message of warning about God's judgment. That man, Jesus, was also a priest who brought a sacrifice to satisfy that judgment. How does he do it? Well, Jesus, like Micah, was a man who mourned over the sin of Jerusalem. Luke 13, verse 34. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And then he pronounces judgment in verse 35 of Luke 14. Behold, your house is forsaken. He calls Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And that was true for many of the ancient prophets to Judah, to Samaria, who brought messages of of warning, who brought messages of judgment. They were not well received. They were were stoned. They They were killed when they brought a message that the people didn't want to hear. And that was true for Jesus, too. But he wasn't just the prophet who, pro- who proclaimed the warning, and he wasn't just the prophet who mourned the consequences. Remember, he was also the priest who brought the sacrifice. Right? Jesus' head wasn't shaved, but he was equally shamed right? when a crown of thorns was put on his head. Jesus was the ultimate prophet who was killed and cut off, not because he was a sinner himself, but because he chose to be counted among them. Right? Michael wasn't just telling the other people to mourn. He said, I count myself among them. Well, Jesus did that in the ultimate way. I choose to count myself and to be counted among the people so that, so that I can face judgment for them. And this is where he differs from Micah. So that I can face judgment for them on their behalf. On my behalf. On your behalf. Now, the remarkable thing about the message of Micah that we'll see over the next few months is that actually it was heeded. It was heard, by Judah at least. Samaria, like I said, was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. during the reign of King Ahaz. But but the kingdom of Judah 
while it teetered uh, facing the same fate at the same time, experienced a remarkable revival during the reign of King Hezekiah that postponed the judgment of God for, for a century. And Micah's preaching is given a good portion of the credit. And maybe that's where the final encouragement for us is. Right? You never know whose ministry God might use. Right? Other, other prophets like Hosea and Amos, they were ignored. The great Jeremiah, he was imprisoned. But here's a prophet, an obscure prophet, from a small town on the edge of nowhere whose preaching, by the grace of God, changed history and preserved the people of God from judgment. Now, yes, only for a hundred years. But in doing that, he pointed us to the one, to Jesus, who will preserve and, and does preserve the people of God for all eternity. Now, proclaiming that message is something that all of us then can do, no matter where we're from, no matter how obscure we might think we are. We don't need a prominent pulpit. We don't have to be an influencer by the world's definition. But we can be a faithful prophet, believing the Word of God for ourselves, weeping over the effects of sin in our world, and pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Scripture And thank you for the prophet Micah and the way that you worked in his life to bring us a message of warning and a message of mourning that ultimately points us to the Savior of our souls. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to penetrate and change our hearts, that we would heed your warning, that we would repent of our sin, that we would come to you in faith and experience your grace. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.